It was a hot, humid day in July 1505. A brilliant young law student was traveling near the German village of Stotternheim in what was then electoral Saxony. Having recently earned his master's degree, he had, by all accounts, a promising and lucrative law career ahead of him. But as often happens on hot summer days, the sky darkened without warning. Green leaves stirred and shook in the trees as a rising wind began to agitate the branches. It started to rain. Suddenly, a bolt of lightning struck so near the traveler that he was knocked to the ground. Fearing God's wrath would rest upon him if he should perish, the terrified young man cried out, Help me, Saint Anne, and I, I will become a monk. And just 15 days later in nearby Erfurt, Germany, the man who would later condemn monasticism entered an Augustinian monastery. The man's name was Martin Luther and he was 21 years old. Now if this story seems strange or unlikely, you must understand Christian piety at the end of the Middle Ages. The vast majority of professing believers at the beginning of the 16th century in Christian Europe understood that Almighty God has a holy hatred of sin, that he will condemn sinners who die in a state of sin to an eternity of miserable punishment in hell. To be justified before him required righteousness. The best way to get righteousness, it was believed, was to enter a monastery where you could spend the rest of your life in works of prayer, fasting, and study, denying the lusts of the flesh and giving up all you possessed to the poor. So Luther entered the monastery to save his soul, to seek the righteousness that a holy God required in the best and most effective way he could, as a monk. Young brother Luther tried, according to the teaching of Rome, to be justified by God on account of his good works. In order to earn righteousness, Luther went beyond the prescribed fasts and prayer vigils of his order, spending hours in daily prayers, often fasting without a speck of food for days on end. If prideful thoughts came into his mind, he would sleep on the hard floor or without any blankets, shivering all night to punish the flesh. Luther was trusting and walking in what the church said you needed to do to be saved. Do the sacrament of penance. But to do penance and merit the grace of the sacrament, every recognized sin had to be remembered and confessed. So during each week's required time of confession, Luther would ransack his mind and his motives over everything he did or thought the previous day, regularly spending hours in the confessional in order to receive absolution. But invariably, mere moments later, he would remember some attitude, thought, or desire that was not wholly devoted to God, and he would be in despair again until tomorrow's time of confession. Now, it was not that Luther lacked the faith to adhere to the church's teaching. His problem was that he did believe. He believed the church when it taught that a believing sinner received the grace of justification through the sacraments as he did his part to cooperate and become righteous. And this is what kept tripping Luther up. His part was never good enough. His part of keeping the sacraments always spoiled the righteousness that he sought from them. And so Luther began to hate the righteousness of God which condemned him. 
During his early years, whenever Luther read what would become the famous Reformation text, Romans 1.17, his eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteous. Who, after all, he thought, could live by faith, but those who were already righteous. The text was clear on that matter. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther remarked, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, by which I had been taught according to the custom and use of all his teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous and he knew it. But then, while leading lectures on the Psalms and a study of the book of Romans, he began to see a way through his dilemma. At last, he said, Meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here, he said, I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. On the heels of this new understanding came others. To Luther, the church was no longer the institution defined by apostolic succession. Instead, it was the community of those who had been given faith. Salvation came not by the sacraments as such, but by faith. The idea that human beings had a spark of goodness, enough to seek out God themselves, was not a foundation of theology, but a foolish teaching, he discovered. Humility was no longer a virtue that earned grace, but a necessary response to the gift of grace. Faith no longer consisted of assenting to the church's teachings, but of trusting the promises of God and the merits of Christ. It wasn't long before the revolution in Luther's heart and mind played itself out in all of Europe and the whole world. Central, Martin Luther had always understood that God requires perfect righteousness. What he discovered in the book of Romans was what the apostle in the early church had always taught about the essence of the gospel and that had been lost in the medieval church in Luther's day. This righteousness has been completely accomplished by Jesus and he promises to give it to anyone who believes in him for it. This is what sparked the reformation. Perhaps it will spark a reformation in your heart today as we study the doctrine of justification. Now, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And just as you turn there, I want to kind of get you up to speed in the context of our text today. Romans 1.18 to 3 verse 20 In those verses, the Apostle Paul has been explaining that no one is able to make themselves righteous before God. Let's pick it up in Romans 3 verse 9. What then, Paul said, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, this is what he's said up until this point in Romans, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Down to verse 19 of Romans chapter three. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In some ways, Paul says actually in places, he talks about the law being a wonderful gift. A wonderful gift because it reveals to us what we should be like. The law really are all the commands of God. The law, particularly the Ten Commandments, show us the real target that we are to be aiming for and reveal just how far our hearts miss the mark. So in that regard, the law can diagnose us, diagnose us but the law cannot repair us. After reading Romans 1 to 3, we should actually feel overwhelmed. Everywhere we turn, we find more guilt and corruption in us. We look at our bad deeds and see they are full of sin and rebellion. And then we look at our good deeds and see they're full of pride and selfishness, competitiveness and jealousy. Hanley Mole, the 19th century British theologian, was right when he said the harlot the liar, the murderer, are short of God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you stand on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they are, or as 19th century Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev wrote, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it is terrible. So at this point in Romans, you're left wondering, well, then who can be saved? If all of us are found to be unrighteous, if, if our righteousness is like filthy rags, as an Old Testament prophet puts it, how can we possibly be saved? Who can be saved and how can we possibly be saved? There's this proverb in Proverbs 17, verse 15, that says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, the Lord detests them both. Those who justify the wicked and who condemn the righteous. God detests them both. God tells human judges not to call the wicked good and the good wicked. The puzzle is, well, then how can God do that for us if it's not right? Are you following with me? For, for a human judge to say to a criminal, you're innocent, it's not right. Well, then how can God say we're innocent? Because that's not actually fair. So how can God declare that we have no penalty to pay for sin and that we have the merits of perfect righteousness if we are in fact guilty sinners? Well, enter the doctrine of election. No, <laughs> We did that one already. <laughs> the doctrine of justification. Many of you are relieved. You're like, thank goodness. I did not want to go back there. The doctrine of justification. Look, Luther said that the verses I'm about to read in Romans 3 are the chief point and the very central place of the book of Romans and the whole Bible. A more modern theologian, Leon Morris, suggested they may, what I'm about to read, they may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. So take your Bible, open it to Romans chapter three. I'm going to read for us 
verses 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the outline we're going to follow today. We're going to look at the source of our justification, the ground of our justification, and the means of our justification. The source, the ground, and the means of our justification. But first, a definition. I've said justification about 18 times already. So let me define the term and then we'll plug in, okay? Then we'll go for it. Here's the definition. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification is a legal, forensic term. Comes from the law courts. And its opposite is actually condemnation, where we, we actually, if we had read Romans 1 to 3 properly, would see that all are condemned. That's Paul's point up until verse 21. That's the point he's making. Both justification and condemnation are pronouncements of a judge. So just to place this in our series a little bit, whereas regeneration has to do with being given a new heart, justification has to do with being given a new status, a status change. So even though we will have a lifelong process of sanctification, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, which has to do with being made righteous, justification upon being saved means our legal standing before God changes from being guilty to not guilty before God. Justification is the word that Luther said launched the Protestant Reformation. In the gospel, because Jesus' righteousness is credited, the theological word is imputed to me, I am declared justified. It's not that I become righteous enough that God declares me righteous, but while I am still sinful, God declares me righteous. So let's dig into this so we can grasp how God can still be just while at the same time justifying sinners. Are you with me? All right. I heard that. All right, perfect. Let's go. First, the source of our justification, God and his grace. God and his grace are the source of our justification. Look at verse 23 into 24 again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. What is the source of our justification? Grace, the grace of God. Paul has spent two chapters explaining why the law is an insufficient answer to the universal human problem of sin. So some version of the law is basically what every religion puts forward. 
do these things, and if you do them well enough, you will live. That's what Martin Luther was doing. Religion works essentially off this premise. I obey, therefore I am accepted. So it's not an exaggeration to say that all non-Christian systems think of the self-movement of man towards God. I obey and therefore I am accepted. Mysticism imagines that the human spirit can soar up to God, us make our way to God. So does moralism, so does philosophy. But like Martin Luther understood, there's a vast gulf between holy God and sinful, guilty human beings. And we can't possibly get there on our own. So fundamental to the gospel of salvation is the truth that the saving initiative from beginning to end belongs to God the Father. So rather than the premise of obey, therefore I'm accepted, our text is telling us that I am accepted entirely by the grace of God, God to us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. It's receiving something that we don't deserve because we're completely unable to earn favor with God. The only way we could be declared righteous is if God freely provides salvation for us by grace, totally apart from our work. This is what Ephesians 2 says. Paul says it there. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. By grace you have been saved. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace is clearly put in contrast to works of merit as the reason why God is willing to justify us. Grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus. Not on account of any merit in ourselves. What grace. Timothy Keller put it this way. Because of God's grace towards us, he's a father worth having and he's a father we can have. Why? because we're not the source of justification, he is. And he freely gives it by grace. Let me just apply this a little bit. Justification should give you peace with God. Not a sense of anxiety and worry. Oh God, I don't know if I'll ever be right with you. Oh God, I don't know if I'll ever get to heaven. Oh God, how can you even look at me? I'm such a wretch. Oh God, how can my sin ever be forgiven? The doctrine of justification teaches us that it's a gift from God, not by works. It's not an issue of how good we've been or how bad we've been, but completely about the gracious gift of God. And he gives us a new status by his grace. Therefore, we can have peace. Now let's look at the ground of our justification. Christ and his cross are the, just, are the ground of our justification. So back to some of these questions we were mulling over near the beginning. How can God remain righteous? How can God maintain a perfect record of being just and always doing what is right and make sinners who deserve just condemnation? condemnation? How can he make us righteous? 
How can a just God justify justifying you and me? How can a just God justify justifying you and me? The answer? Let me look at it again. Let's look at the text. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We are justified by grace on the grounds of his son, Jesus, and his cross. The father justifies his people through the work of his son who redeemed us and whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A couple $5 theological words there. Let's look at the first one, redemption. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Of uh, that poignant scene in the film Dumb and Dumber, when uh, Lloyd trades in Harry's van for a moped for their road trip to a little place called Aspen. And at this point in the film, their relationship has been fractured. You're not really sure what's going to happen. And then Lloyd pulls up in the moped he got for trading in Harry's van. And Harry looks at him and assesses the situation and you're not quite sure what he's gonna say. And then Harry says, Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly do anything any dumber, you go and totally redeem yourself. It's a powerful scene. Now, redemption is a, a marketplace word that means to be brought back, to bring back from destruction, to restore something. So it was used in the Old Testament, the ancient world of slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. They were redeemed. Redemption was a word used by the people of Israel who were used about the people of Israel who were redeemed from captivity in Egypt. And so in the same way, this redemption word, Jesus redeeming us by his blood, in the same way, we're slaves, captives, in bondage to our sin and guilt, and utterly unable to liberate ourselves. But the exodus, what it's doing in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the greater redemption won by Jesus for his people through his blood by forgiving them of their sins through his death on the cross. During the Revolutionary War, there was a faithful preacher of the gospel named Peter Miller. He lived near a fellow who hated him immensely for his Christian life and testimony. In fact, this man violently opposed him and ridiculed his followers. One day, the unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Hearing about this, Peter Miller set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. He was the general at the time. The general, George Washington, listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. My friend? He is not my friend, answered Miller. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What? said Washington. You have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. With pardon in hand, Miller hastened to the place where his neighbor was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. 
When the traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. He was redeemed. Now, Peter Miller performed a noble act, and he will be eternally commended for that, I'm sure. But this is just a shadow of what Jesus did. Because Jesus not only obtained his enemy's pardon, but died in order to accomplish it. See, our verse tells us that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just advocate for us while we were still his enemies. He laid down his very life on the cross to redeem us. Now on, if, if, if redemption's a $5 word, propitiation's like a $20 word. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now propitiation is this. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. This is a critical word and theological concept. Now this concept actually makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. They sometimes accuse God of divine child abuse in this regard. But it's not. Imagine that I'm walking down the sidewalk with my boys and I tell them, hey boys, I, I love you so much. And, and one of my sons looks up at me and says, how much do you love me? And as a car drives by, I just jump in front of it and get hit and die. That, that would be a pointless act. And it wouldn't really prove anything. Because sometimes people say, it wasn't a propitiation. God wasn't making his son pay the price on the cross. That would be divine child abuse. No, he was just showing his love for us. But you've got to say, well, what does that accomplish? He just died on a cross to show us love? No, what he was doing on the cross was dying in our place and bearing the wrath that we deserve. It's like me walking down the sidewalk with my sons and one of them trips and is falling into traffic and I'm able to push him out of the way, spare his life, but I get hit and die. It's love with a purpose that accomplishes something. So when, when God is accused of divine child abuse and propitiation is really the center focus of those claims, there are two important things I need to stress. One is this. This was the father's plan and the son's willing sacrifice. Jesus didn't suffer because he had to, but because he loved his father and us. Jesus says as much in John 10, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. This was the Father's plan and the Son's willing sacrifice. Second, what, what people often do is that they'll say, Jesus didn't need to die. God didn't need to, to, to put the wrath of humanity upon his son. He could have just forgiven us. Why didn't he just forgive us? Just say, it's, it's done, debt is paid. Simply forgive us. Listen, this is the second thing I need to say. To simply forgive sin without the penalty for sin being paid would actually be unjust. Now, I think I'm probably gonna offend some people right now. 
But I think the argument that God should just forgive sins without sending Christ to the cross is an argument made by people who haven't really suffered injustice. I should just set it aside, not truly deal with it, not truly bring justice to it. Some of you don't need to think very hard about this, but if you do need to think hard about injustices, just just try and think right now of the most horrific crimes and injustices you've ever heard about. Would God be just to just forgive it? Ah, it's fine. That wouldn't be justice. So many people would never get justice. God would be unjust. God is just precisely because he is a just judge who judges rightly and administers justice. The brilliance of the gospel is that he can forgive us of our sins and credit Christ's righteousness to us because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Here's what all of this means. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. The cross is the place where the judge himself takes the judgment. God doesn't set his justice aside. He turns it on himself. On the cross, the wrath and love of God were both vindicated, were both demonstrated, and were both expressed Perfectly, The cross is a demonstration that both of God's justice and his justifying love are displayed. The cross is a demonstration of his justice and his love. That's why it says in verse 26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Not sure if you've heard of the Innocence Project or not, but it's a nonprofit legal organization dedicated to exonerating wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing. Their approach is to have law students handle the casework with supervision given by a team of attorneys. Most of their clients are poor, forgotten, and have used up all their legal options. And yet, since 1989, More than 250 people in 34 states in the U.S. have been exonerated through post-conviction DNA testing. The wrongfully accused spent anywhere from five months to 35 years in prison. On average, exonerees served 13 years in prison before being proven innocent, before they were finally given justice. Now... Unlike the Innocence Project, who give the wrongfully accused the justice they deserve, Jesus justifies those who don't deserve it at all. In that regard, Jesus is our defense attorney. He pleads our not guilty sentence and he never loses a case because he's pleading our innocence on the basis of his shed blood for us. How can a just God justify sinners and still be righteous? by putting the just penalty for our sins on the spotless lamb, his son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I just want to touch briefly on a couple lines from verses 21 and 25. God's method of saving sinners through Christ's death meets the just demand of his holy nature and makes a way for guilty sinners to be seen as righteous in his sight. This wasn't an afterthought plan. Okay, we have some indications in this text. This wasn't an afterthought plan of God. It was always the plan of God. That's why Paul says in verse 21 that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And how in divine forbearance, verse 25, he could pass over the sins of the people of faith we read about in the Old Testament and we read about in places like Hebrews 11, that hall of faith as it looks at Old Testament heroes. All of those who lived by faith or as the rapper Shai Lin puts it in one of his songs, before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. It's a good line. Let's go to the third. Faith and faith alone is the means of our justification. Faith and faith alone is the means of our justification. Paul underlines the necessity of faith three times in our text. In verse 21, we read, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, And then verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One of the five solas of the Reformation means alone or only is sola fide, which means by faith alone. And what's important for us to recognize is that the object of our faith justifies us before God, not our ability to have great faith. Okay, so I may have great unshakable faith, for example, in the ability of feathers strapped to my arms to fly me from the US to the UK, but I've put my faith in the wrong place. Equally, I may have just barely enough faith to board a transatlantic flight. Wouldn't it be wonderful to board a transatlantic flight? I may have just barely enough faith to board a transatlantic flight, trembling nervously as I do, And yet the object of my faith will accomplish what it promises. It's not faith that saves. It is faith in the object of our faith. It is Jesus Christ that saves. Our justification comes to us by means of faith in Jesus. So when it says in verse 24 that we're justified by his grace as a gift, that word gift means literally freely, without payment, free of charge, as a free gift. So it's really important that we not see faith as another sort of work. We're not saved by another sort of work that is now faith. Jesus contributes the cross and I contribute the kind of faith that saves. No, don't fall prey to the subtle mistake of thinking that our faith actually saves us. Faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Here's why this is so important. If you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you'll stop looking at Jesus and start looking at your faith. That's turning your faith into a work. Faith is only the means by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. And if you don't recognize this, you'll think you have something to boast about. I'm saved because I put my faith in Jesus. That person's not saved. They haven't trusted in Jesus. What's wrong with them? See, what this does is it cuts away our assurance and it boosts our pride. So if we feel like we have little faith, 
Now we freak out and we worry about our assurance of faith. Or if we think, man, my faith is really solid. I've got really, so- I've got really strong faith. Well, now we have, we're prideful and we have something to boast about. It's not how it works. John Stott put it this way. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, and the mouth that drinks the living water. God justifies the believer, not because of the worthiness of our belief, but because of the worthiness of the one in whom we believe. It's all about Jesus. Look, as we close, I just want to reflect here. A couple minutes. The doctrine of justification really does give you peace with God. Its source is his grace and the price has already been paid. There's nothing for you to earn just simply to receive. If you were to read up to Romans chapter three, verse 20, things look dire. And the deceiver, Satan, can come to you and probably does speak lies to you, tempt you, challenge you, discourage you, and say things like, you're not really saved. Look how messy your life still is. You just read the Sermon on the Mount. You do not measure up to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you believe the deceiver in that moment, you'll lay on the ground in a hopeless state. You will walk around discouraged, fearful, perhaps even hopeless. What I need you to remember is the truth, the most important lines perhaps of the entire Bible, and they start with this, but now. See, see, Paul's made this point through Romans up to three, chapter three, verse 20. And we are all genuinely worthy of condemnation. And it's like we have no hope, but then it says, but now. And so when the deceiver comes to you and says, you're not worthy, you say, I know I'm not worthy, but now. But now look at the grace of my loving heavenly father. But now look at the finished work of Jesus Christ that I get recorded to my record that he has accomplished and all I need to do is put my trust in what Jesus has already done for me. Yes, I'm not good enough, but God sees me as righteous and we get peace. The doctrine of justification also gives us confidence that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that have been forgiven on Christ's merits. The doctrine of justification ensures that God is able to justify sinners and be just in all he does. This is a beautiful and important truth. Justification is God's brilliant way of declaring guilty sinners not guilty. God is just, God is good, God does no wrong. He is faithful, he will judge sin, but he will also embrace on the record of his son those who put their trust in him. The doctrine of justification is available to everyone by faith alone. And what that does is that it it enables us to offer genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves right before God. We get to hold out hope, the hope of the gospel, because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of God's free offer of grace, because it is not by anything we accomplish, but by faith. We can hold that out to others and they can embrace Jesus and they can be saved. The doctrine of justification, I hope, 
I hope this incredible doctrine does in you what it did in Luther, and that is change absolutely everything. We are free, we are his, and we shift all our efforts from trying to earn salvation, and we shift those to living in grateful response for salvation. He has done it all. He has paid it all. We are guilty, but in Christ, we are declared not guilty. Praise God. I hope that that stirs up in you worship and praise of our God. Justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. And I don't know about you, but what that makes me want to do is give all glory to God as it rightly should. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for these rich doctrines we're wading through. And God, they... uh, They're corrective in some ways where perhaps our belief uh, has not been um, aligned with your faithfulness. We see that in in what you've laid out in in human history. Lord, we see that in Luther and his wrestlings. But Lord, I pray that we would come to see all that you've done, that you justify us. You take our guilty verdict and make it a not guilty verdict because of the blood the redemption, the propitiation of your son, Jesus. And we get to simply receive it by faith. Lord, I pray that some would receive it by faith for the first time right now. Turn to you and live. Be justified. Have God look at them right now with a new status. And we get to turn to you because you're gracious. And it's by faith alone. God, I thank you. I pray that we would live into that. And out of the abundance of gratitude for your grace, live with joy, live with hope, live in worship and praise, and live for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.